0: Though we go through difficult times, obviously, there's a lot going on in the world. Um, If any of you stay tuned to the news, there's a lot, a lot of things to pray about, both here and abroad. Um, You know, these are the times that you know we we definitely know are a part of the lives that we in the experiences that we have. Thank God that we know that it's leading someplace, that God is unfolding a plan um, and God gives an account. Um, and has an answer for everything we face and we endure, uh, for all the things that we can't make sense of, the things that you know, are too horrible to uh, even try to put into a frame and speak about, um, God has an answer. So we, we hold, um, hold on to God's promises. We hold on to uh, what God is doing. And so as we gather here today, um, I'm grateful, uh, grateful for those who are able to join us on Zoom as well. Um, we're one big family, even though we may not be all in the same place, uh, because the Spirit unites us. So, today I'm looking forward to a, a second part of uh, something that we began last week. So, this is uh, the part B of a uh, sermon that we looked at last week. So, I'll, I'll give a bit of a recap for those of us who weren't here last week. So, hopefully, you won't be too lost, but it will springboard from it into today. Um, the title of today's sermon is taken from Judges chapter 11 verses 29 through 40. But before we dive into that, I'll give you a bit of a recap for what we covered before. What we're gonna talk about today is the true nature of godly living. Living through times, living through situations and seasons in our lives that may not necessarily be the easiest. Um, It may not necessarily be things that we have the most assuredness in in terms of what is God doing. Um, but yet, God is still there and God is in control. Um, and I'd like to use what we talked about last week as a bit of a springboard, which was Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4. through four. Um, And there we looked at what does it mean that our lives are hidden in Christ? So Colossians 3, 1-4, through four, we talked about the hidden life in Christ. And if you can recall, if you were here, um, I, I opened with a bit of an analogy, a bit of a story that I used as a frame. And I'll share that story just as we launch today again. And the story was about two fish, two young fish, two young fish swimming along, and they're excited about the places that they're going to go and see and do out in the ocean. And as they're swimming, they pass a much mature, more mature fish, who's going the other direction. Um, And as they pass, the mature fish says, hey, fellas, how's the water? And they continue to swim on. And after a while, one of the young fish turns to the other and says, "Uh, what is water? None None of them knew. And I really like that story because I think that is a very, very good analogy for what we looked at with what it means when lives are hidden, Um, because fish who cannot see water cannot see water. Why? Because it's around them all of the time, every day. It sustains them. They eat, sleep, and breathe in it. And even though it's the thing that's probably the most important thing to their reality, they habituate to it because it's so common so that they don't see it. And I like that analogy to talk about First Col- uh, talk about Colossians, the third chapter, because I think that's similar. Something just, dis- I think I hit something here. Um, in Colossians, our author Paul is talking about, hey, in the spirit, there is something that sustains us. There's something that's all around us that is the reality that is the most important reality. But just like the fish in the water, the most important realities are often those that are hardest to see. Why? Because they're around us all the time. It's a part of every day. And because we just don't pay attention to it and because we don't notice it, we sometimes sort of get caught up with the flesh, meaning we're looking at the world and going through every day with just the sight that we have. I mean, we have to remember that there's a lot going on in the spirit. There's a lot that God has actually accomplished and a lot that God is unfolding and doing, even in our very lives, that if we could just roll back the curtain and see what God is actually doing, we'd be amazed and shocked. We'd be surprised at what God is paying attention to, what God doesn't miss. And even those things that we don't necessarily pay attention to, that we may feel like maybe we dropped the ball, missed it, or maybe we're suffering for reasons that don't make sense to us, God gives an account for all of that. And he turns those things into gold and those things matter, because Jesus Christ is our model for that. And everything that Jesus went through, the suffering, the stripes, those things were for good. It actually ended up with a defeat, a defeat of the enemy. And so I'd like to sort of keep in mind that frame as we springboard into today's passage. There are a couple of reasons, I think, as to why it is difficult for us to see and appreciate the reality, the spiritual reality, behind our experiences. And and one of them we looked at last week, obviously, and and that's because of the everydayness of our experience, the everydayness of our experience, the mundane things. Um, And that's what I think we took from last week. And, and think about it this way, if I were to ask you, what did you see on Friday on your way to work, on your drive to work, or what did you see as you walked around the neighborhood if you take a walk every day, or what did you see if you took that stroll to the coffee shop that you normally take you know, on a regular occasion? And, and nine times out of 10, most people probably cannot answer that question, why? Because unless something happened that was unusual, that made it stand out, you probably were on autopilot. Because it's so common, it's an everyday thing, and that's, that's normal. We should be on autopilot for everyday things because we don't need to be thinking about them. Well, that, that's a really good way to maybe think about um, why Paul is talking about our lives being hidden. Hard to see, um, but if we could just roll the curtain back and see how God sees it, we might be surprised. I would ask it, us to consider Matthew chapter 25, um, when it's talking about in the last day, and the judgment day, and Jesus is saying, hey, when I was thirsty and you gave me a drink, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat, when I was sick, you took care of me, when I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. And then those believers who are about to receive their reward say, Lord, when did we see you thirsty and we gave you something to drink? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you needing to be brought in and we took you in? Et cetera, et cetera. And of course, Jesus' response, well, as you did it to the least of these who are in my family, you did it to me. And I think the point that we we pull from that is, number one, the believers are surprised and bewildered at how God actually saw and sees their actions. Surprised probably because it was a part of their character to, to do those things. That it was probably so commonplace That, yeah, it probably doesn't make their radar that they would do those things, but yet God pays so much attention and uses those moments to actually amplify what he's done in our lives, as as examples of lives that are his. Those are not missed by God, even though it's something that would be very common for those of us who might actually be living out the life that Christ has given us. Ministry may be something that we do without thinking sometimes. And, And I think, you know, I used to think, well, Lord, I don't want to miss those times. If you see it as important, I want to make sure that I see it as, po- as important. And that's true. But I think there's also something about that that says, Lord, I, I pray that my character becomes such that I would just live for you in such a way that it becomes so commonplace that I habituate to it, like, like the fish in the water, because it's just so common for me to be sort of flowing in you that it doesn't stand out as somehow different or unusual for me. And, and God is still working with me on that and because here's how I know God is still working with me on that. A few years ago actually it was at a Christmas party, a work Christmas party and one of, the, one of my coworkers, um, i had known her for a number of years, she, she's a very nice lady, uh, very shy though, very shy and uh, I remember it took her uh, a long time when she started dating this young man to even mention it to us, her co-workers, um, and it took her even longer to sort of muster up the, the nerve and the courage to actually bring him one year to our holiday party um, as we gathered together each, each holiday season. And she's shy and retiring and very quiet, um, and so he honestly was, was kind of shy and retiring. And It was probably a really big deal for her that you know, we, her co- colleagues, who she really did you know, work with every day and were a part of her life, Um, got a chance to meet this guy and get a chance to really know him, and it's really important that we like him. Uh, Doesn't make or break the relationship, but, you know, who wouldn't want that? And she told me, after I had met him, (laughs) months later, um, Rick, I remember, do you remember when you first met him? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember you brought him to the holiday party. She said, yeah, you made fun of his name as soon as I introduced him to you. (laughs) And I'll be honest with you, I have no recollection of doing that. And everything in me actually wanted to stand up and say, no, that didn't happen. But then I caught myself and I realized knowing me, I probably have done that sort of thing about a thousand times. So even though I don't remember it, it's probably because I do it so much that it doesn't stand out right and so I felt terrible because actually it it was something that they took in in a a wrong way I didn't mean it that way honestly I meant it in such a way where if you kind of know me um, you know if I if I really sort of have an affinity for somebody I want to welcome them I will sort of josh with them I'll tease with them a bit it's just a bit of my upbringing Um, but apparently it didn't go down that way right so so I caught myself in the midst of that and I realized, hey, you know, even though I don't remember what you're talking about and I'd feel terrible if I sort of did remember that, um, because I know my character and that is definitely something that I probably would do, I can only apologize. Now, I use that to say God is still working with me because there are some things that I do so commonly that I'm surprised when people bring it to my attention, right? But. God wants that, but for the positive, right? So don't do what I do, but God wants it for the positive. Can we actually be living in such a way that we're interacting with the world and the people around us such that it is so common that we're just in ministry mode, that we're just our life itself is something that is speaking about Jesus or exemplifying the values or exemplifying the character that God has given us such that when it's actually brought back to us, we might not even remember it because it is just so much a part of who we are. So there's a part of that that I hold on to and sort of aspire for, Um, and it'd be great if that actually could happen and somebody one day actually come back and tell me something positive that I've done. So I hold on to those things. So that's last week. That's last week. This week, we're going to look at the second reason that I sort of pull out of this that looks at why is it that it's hard to see and maybe even appreciate the significance of our daily experiences, of as, as we go through life, this life that Christ has given us. We, we sometimes can miss the significance of it in terms of our interactions, our decisions, how we sort of navigate life. Uh, knowing that God sees it and holds it very importantly, we may not necessarily register it that way. And, and that's what we're actually gonna look at today. And, and I'll put before you the second reason as to why that happens is because honestly life in our experiences can actually give us a lot of ambiguity a lot of ambiguity things may not necessarily appear simply black and white this is God's way and this is what God wants you to do this is the way that you need to avoid if, if life actually appeared like a sporting event where you got the black hats on one side clearly delineated from the red hats on the other I think we would all probably make easy choices, most of us, Um, but that is not how life actually appears. Life actually gives us situations and we can be a part of things that just have a lot of complexity. It's not so clear when we come to the fork in the road that going left is actually the way to go. Going right is the way to avoid. Sometimes we actually have to discern, God, what are you doing in the midst of this? Sometimes the questions we ask is, God, are you even in the midst of this? Because the choices seem imperfect, or the choices seem like they're such that no matter what we choose, there's going to be a cost, there's going to be a problem, we're going to be let down. They're not perfect choices. So that ambiguity, that's, that's the real reality of, of everyday living, even everyday living in Christ. Life gives us ambiguity. With that ambiguity, it requires faith, it requires faith. Just like it requires faith to be able to see what God sees and view how we do through each day, the way that God views it, um, it requires faith and that's what God wants from us. So as we prepare to dive into a really, I'm going to say, interesting. Passage of scripture. Many people actually do avoid this particular scripture that we're going to jump into uh, because when we talk about ambiguous situations, these are those that, you know, I, I can't think of probably a more ambiguous situation than the one we're about to actually read. And it's about Jephthah and his daughter. It's about an individual who makes a vow to God, follows through on this vow. And it cost him dearly. So, if we turn to Judges chapter 11. We're going to actually look at verse 29 through 40. And as we read this, I'd ask you to keep in mind real life situations over the years that believers, that Christians have gone through, that Christians deal with. Keep in mind there are situations where there's so much ambiguity going on, things are not as clear. Sometimes Christians suffer and pay the ultimate price for things that uh, don't necessarily seem to be exactly for the gospel or you wonder if it's for the gospel. There are missionaries through, through, through the centuries who have been killed. Some at the stake, and we know of, and those are the martyrs that we celebrate. Some of them have been killed for reasons that seem to be not necessarily reasons for the gospel, but reasons for just misunderstanding. When we think about what we know from history in France, you had a number of Christians who were killed um, in the second century in France, and why were they killed? because the people actually thought that Christians were cannibals. Why would they think that Christians were cannibals? Because they misunderstood what they were talking about when they were saying they gather regularly to eat the body of somebody named Christ. In Rome, Emperor Trajan treated Christians of in, in Asia Minor quite harshly, quite severely. Why? Not because he hated Jesus personally, but because he actually suspected that the Christians were plotting sedition. He was thinking politically. So it wasn't about Christ necessarily, and so you had a bunch of people who actually suffered, died, not necessarily standing for the gospel itself, but, but it seems like, wow, but this is such a tragic misunderstanding. And so you've got these moments where it would seem that you know, we're, we're going through things, we're suffering, we're paying the price, Um, for things that seem either senseless or they just don't make a lot of sense because it's not clear that this is about the gospel, this is not about God, but yet these things befall us. Lives are cut short tragically by coronavirus. Lives are cut short tragically by accidents. Lives full of promise. Doctors can't cure things. Cancer diagnoses happen with children and people in their 20s, and you would think these things are senseless, but God is in control still. God is somehow a part of this process that he's bringing through. And so this is what I mean. It's like if we knew that what we were doing was for, for the cause of Christ, that'd be easy. But life gives us these, this ambiguity, and sometimes it's difficult, the sacrifices that we make. We wish it were clear. So that's what we're going to look at with Jephthah here. So in verse 11, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 29, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror, to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel-Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. Then Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah. Who sh- when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year, the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Hmm. What... A situation. I think when we hear of stories like this, when we read of scriptures um, that are talking about things like this, um, we often wonder and ask the question, God, are you in the midst of this? Why would you actually do something like that? Is this something that you're a part of? How can that be? And that's absolutely the questions and the, the wrestlings that people have had through the centuries around stories like this. Um, let me give you a bit of a Context for for what's going on here, um, before we dive in. So, Jephthah is actually a mighty warrior. He's actually born in Israel, or born in in um, his people. His father was Gilead, um, and he was raised with his brothers. And something very interesting was going on in that family. However, um, Jephthah was a little different than his other siblings in this way. Gilead, his father, had a wife, and his wife bore him children. His wife was not the mother of Jephthah. Jephthah's mother was actually a prostitute. She had become pregnant from the dalliance with Gilead. Gilead actually stepped in and raised Jephthah in his household, brought him into the household, raised him as a son, which he was, and all was fine until Gilead passed away, and when the father passed away and it was time to dole out the inheritance, then the siblings caught an attitude. And they basically concluded he's not gonna inherit with us because look at his mom. And so they cut him out of the inheritance, they ostracized him, and Jephthah actually ended up having to sort of flee into exile from his home and actually resided in another region altogether. And while he was in this region, over time then, he actually sort of amassed a bit of a following. A bunch of people would actually come and join his band, and these were people who were mercenary types, people who were sort of the outcasts, the unsavory individuals. But they actually became quite good at mercenary tactics, and so Jephthah became this mighty warrior. He actually became quite skilled militarily as a result of this life that he was living. Sometime later, Ammon, the Ammonites, actually then started to threaten and wanted to attack and take back the land of his brethren, and the ones who had kicked him out. And so, of course, Ammon is a formidable force. They actually didn't have somebody with the skill set of Jephthah when it comes to militarily. And so they sort of came back with their tails between their legs and they approached Jephthah and they said, hey, can you come back, even though we kicked you out, and actually lead our army and actually fight against the Ammonites? And Jephthah was, you know, how would you feel? Right? How, how would you feel in that situation? I think most of us would probably sort of say, no, you know what, you're on your own and you made that decision a long time ago, you should have thought. But Jephthah, Jephthah didn't do that. Jephthah actually though said, you know, I will actually consider doing that if there was a condition. The condition was you don't just make me the head of your army, but if the Lord grants me victory, you actually make me head over the people outright so that he would actually be their ruler. And this was the time before Israel had kings, so this was the judge, these were the judges, and he was considered a judge, somebody who would deliver Israel from their oppressors. And they agreed to this, they actually agreed to this. And so of course, Jephthah's next move then was to go and consult the Lord, because this is not him just acting out of his own accord, he actually consults God. And in his prayer and in his conversation with God, he makes this vow. Lord, if you would grant me victory, the first thing that comes out of my house to meet me upon coming back in triumph, I'll sacrifice to you. It'll be yours. He was obviously not thinking that his daughter would be the first person out of the door. And why was he not thinking that? Well, typically, there, there, many people sort of debate this, right? There's animals that are part of households, and if an animal had sort of been the first thing that he encountered, that would be sort of an automatic offering, a burnt offering. But sometimes there'd be people. Sometimes there'd be people who'd come out of your household. And even if there were, he was probably not thinking it'd be his daughter. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this to maybe clarify why, why some Bible scholars sort of come down in different places on this for a moment. But the, re- the end result was when his daughter came out, Jephthah was devastated, absolutely devastated, as I think any of us might be as we get, sort of read this first glance. And I think, Jephthah, if I can sort of imagine putting on sort of stepping into sort of my my role as a father, if I had to somehow give up, sacrifice my own child because of something that I said, I'd be having two, three, four, five conversations. I could be going back to God over and over again. God, did I really say that? Is there a way that we... I'd try to figure out some way to sort of undo that because that actually would be something that... You know I, I would think maybe I said this in haste you know God is there a way out is there grace in the midst of this but Jephthah actually did not do that Jephthah actually said no this is a vow that I cannot take back and I think to understand that we have to look at Leviticus a bit in terms of there are some vows that you can sort of figure out a way to redeem but there's some vows that you cannot take back and this is one of those vows and so it was very interesting because it was his daughter who then said dad Since you made this vow to the Lord, do to me what you've actually said that you would do because this is a vow that you made to the Lord. Now, before we jump to a conclusion that what this meant was that he killed his daughter, let's just pause for a moment. There are many different types of sacrifices that are talked about in the Torah. And the sacrifices typically Are going to be based on what is being offered. And so you've got two views historically in terms of what this story, how it actually played out. One view is the very literal view, which is he actually sacrificed his daughter and killed her. That's the view that probably makes us the most uncomfortable for obvious reasons. There's a second view, though. The second view is. He didn't sacrifice his daughter, he offered his daughter up to the Lord, which meant that she basically stopped being his daughter and she basically served in the temple the rest of her life, the rest of her days, before God. She wouldn't marry, and she wouldn't have children, she became the Lord's. Similar to Samuel, whose mother also dedicated him to the Lord, although Samuel wasn't held to not marrying because Samuel actually had children. But, but a similar type of a vow where you could dedicate someone to the Lord. And Many people come down there. And and even though that might sound like it's more palatable, palatable to us, trust me when I say this, it was still grievous to Jephthah. It was grievous to him. Why? Because Jephthah had basically envisioned setting up his household in leadership because God has given him the victory. He's got one child. He could pass on the leadership to his lineage, if he actually has grandchildren. And what it meant to then give your daughter, even to worship God the rest of her life, and she's not going to marry or have children, meant that your lineage is over at that point. There's not going to be an establishment of your family, even though you've got this leadership role that God has granted you. And so that's the grievousness piece there, no matter how you slice it, which Jephthah is having to sort of deal with. And even though people come down on different sides on this, I'll, I'll sort of give you a, um, a sense of, um, here's some evidence maybe to consider with it. Um, there does seem to be good evidence for both. Okay, But I'll tell you, if you look in Leviticus chapter seven, chapter 22, chapter 27, it actually talks about the different types of offerings. When you look at the judge's, uh, chapter, the judge's verse here, the, the Hebrew word is for, for burnt offering here is aliyah, or al, al, aliyah. That word actually means burnt offering sometimes, but it also means to ascend, to go up. And an offering that is sort of an ascension offering is when you actually give somebody to actually go up to serve before the Lord. And so this is why there's a rabbinic tradition, Jewish folks who actually interpret the actual Hebrew, not to mean that he sacrificed his daughter and killed her, but that he actually gave her over to the Lord to serve for the rest of her days. But what goes along with that sort of a sacrifice is an animal sacrifice as well. So there is a burnt offering piece that goes along with that. And so this is what you actually get at when you start to look at Leviticus, which is not the funnest book to read because it's talking about all of these procedures and ordinances and how sacrifices are made, but it is the book that comes prior to Judges, which means if you want to understand Judges, you do have to understand something about what they're talking about with sacrifices. So I encourage you to spend some time in the midst of that sort of looking at, you know, what valuation was given to certain types of sacrifices. In addition to that, let me just say this. Don't you find it interesting that she actually went and mourned not marrying or Some of you have scriptures, verses that say mourned her virginity. And you would think, well, if she were actually gonna be killed, wouldn't she just mourn outright her life and not necessarily her virginity or not marrying? And that's a very important thing to consider. Very important thing to consider. And so if you are, number one, being given over to God to serve in the temple, for the rest of your days, that means you're not going to marry, that means you will stay a virgin. And of course in that context, it absolutely meant that means you're not going to bring forth children, that means your father's line is done. She needed to mourn that. That was a a source of mourning for her, and she said, Dad, give me two months where I can go with my friends and we can mourn that I'll never marry, that we can mourn my virginity. And it's interesting because she had to do that prior to being turned over to God. Because if you actually read also in Leviticus, it talks about Aaron. It talks about the priests not being able to mourn because they served before God. So even when Aaron's sons were killed by the Lord, Aaron couldn't mourn. The rest of the people mourned for Aaron. Aaron couldn't mourn because he was actually dedicated in serving before the Lord. So all the mourning has to be done before you actually go into God's presence for the rest of your life. Thus, the two months makes a lot of sense in terms of, hey, this is going to be a real unexpected thing, but hey, Dad, you made this vow, so I willingly sort of go into this. Give me a chance to sort of get things together and just mourn the fact that the dreams that you had and the dreams that I had, God has something else in store. But yet still, I've got to mourn that process. So those were the two months. So when we start to look at how all of this fits together, when we look at the ordinances and the the procedures and the instructions for sacrifices, and you don't see human sacrifice in there from Levitical priests, there's no instructions for that, but you see instructions for different sacrifices based on, yes, you can make vows that you actually give people over to the Lord, it fits quite securely in the midst of that context. So I would put before you, that you know, before you sort of hold this in such a way that, that we, we conclude that, wow, Jephthah really killed this, his, his daughter and God somehow is in the midst of that mess and, and now we're sort of struggling in ways, I would say, well, you know, understand that if we look at how the Old Testament actually treated sacrifices, you know, there's really good evidence that, no, he didn't actually kill his daughter, he actually gave her over to serve before the Lord. But I would still say, even in a situation where if God calls you to sacrifice your child, um, and I'm talking about Abraham, it is just very interesting, number one, um, how Abraham obeyed God, but God still stopped the sacrifice. Okay, Abraham obeyed God, but God stopped the sacrifice and put the ram in its place. And I say this just because there can be people who are intent and truly sincere about trying to follow God and what they think God has called them to, but yet they're in an abusive relationship. And they think that somehow, you know, if they were to leave this relationship, that somehow they'd be breaking their promise and commitment to God. And let me just say, you know, If you look at Matthew, chapter chapter 19, the Pharisees are asking Jesus, you know, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus responds to that because, of course, they're trying to trap him. And he doesn't respond with yes or no. He responds with, here's what God actually intended. Divorce was not intended. God actually intended for man and woman to actually live together forever in their marriage well, forever in in their lives together. But because we are broken, because our hearts have to deal with fallenness and sinfulness, there can be situations where because of the way that society is structured, women can be at a tremendous disadvantage from husbands who take advantage of them, mistreat them, and therefore there are things put in place, although not ideal in terms of what God intended in terms of relationship, but because of our brokenness and fallenness, Moses actually is permitted to actually give divorces in order to actually protect vulnerable people from actually experiencing the worst of things. It's not ideal, but that's actually where divorce actually comes from because sometimes there are situations where we just have to deal with fallenness And there are some situations where God is still going to permit and make a way out of that, and it doesn't cut you off. God is gracious in those ways. Even though his intention is something else, he understands that we live situations that are ambiguous situations, that are difficult situations, and he makes a way through those situations. And so I would just want to always say there's never a situation where, where I would, you know, ever tell anybody if they were to even ask my opinion. You know, I'm in a situation, I'm in a marriage and I'm actually being abused. I I would never say, no, God wants you to stay in that. No, I would say absolutely. Get yourself some safety. Understand that God understands and there's a way that God can help you navigate this thing. And sometimes that way is get out of abusive situations. I would never tell anybody to get a divorce, but understand that these are the ambiguities of life. These are the things that we have to navigate, which is not so clear all of the time. And so, this story, I think, is really helpful for us understanding just how God is actually sort of working and, and giving us situations where we can chew on and see that, you know, God, when we read these things and we ask these questions, God, are you in the midst of this? God says, yes, because how 1129 starts is the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. So, somehow, God is in this somehow, and it doesn't mean that it's all perfect. It's not clear, but God is still in this. And Jephthah makes this vow, and you wonder, Jephthah, is that a wise thing to do? But then you look at how Jephthah actually lived his life, and and how Jephthah actually engaged the Ammonites, because he actually sat down to talk with them at first before he went to war. Jephthah's not really a rash individual, but yet this vow is there, which actually results in him not being able to establish his line. I can only imagine what that must be like for Jephthah psychologically. Here's a man who, as long as he was in his father's presence, Gilead, his earthly father, he was fine. The security was there, the love was there, they were one big happy family. But when the father was no longer there, the brothers turned on him. He became rejected. He had to go elsewhere. And so I can imagine how that actually injured him internally. And so when he was thinking about it, contemplating when his brother came back that second time saying, hey will you come and lead our armies? And he said, well will you actually establish me as your head and your leader even beyond the army should I win? And they agreed to it he is setting up his own family to be in a power position where no power can ever, th- so his kids and his grandkids can never experience that again. He's giving them this power position, the way that humans would do it from an earthly perspective that's somehow gonna guard against this ever happening again in the future. If you think about this, I think about this sometimes, It's so forgive my little uh, detour on this, but it's a very interesting thing to me in the dark ages in Europe. There were a lot of peasants in Europe who were on the receiving end of a lot of abuse. Abuse from the powerful people who owned the land and were the wealthy merchants and the noble class. And they came up with all sorts of torture devices that they actually used on the common people for various reasons. The Inquisition was a part of this time period, the Inquisition, when when the church was actually doing a lot of persecution and actually torturing people. And this lasted for like a thousand years. And, and these devices became more and more torturous and horrible. And when we look at then, towards the end of that time frame, about the 1500s, when Europeans started to come over to the Americas, something very interesting. They had gone through generations of abuse at the hands of powerful people, these, these poor individuals who could get on ships and make a new go of it in a new land. And it's very interesting to me because you've ever heard of Bacon's Rebellion? Bacon's Rebellion was the same thing started to happen here. You had the wealthy landowners who weren't actually sort of giving people what they needed. They'd come over as indentured servants, and they'd work, and they were supposed to get you know, money and land after they'd finished. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, the, the terms weren't right, and they were being taken advantage of. And so they rose up in order to rebel against this and so what you actually had in Bacon's Rebellion is you had these indentured servants and you had these enslaved people and they all came together on one side and they rose up to say, hey this isn't right. And it took about a year but they honestly lost that, they they lost that struggle. What happened afterwards from that is is very interesting and it actually shapes a lot of our context today in, in this country. The wealthy landowners said to the indentured servants, you know, we'll make it so that you can actually maybe one day become a wealthy landowner. We'll make it so that you have access to it, you just continue to work hard, and and we'll put things in place. But you, you cannot join forces with enslaved people, and they made this distinction. Before that, you had indentured servants who are white, black, and everything in between. But they made this distinction because what they realized were well, if you've got indentured servants, they eventually get free and then they want things. So we need people who never get free. So we'll keep the people who are here, make them a part of us, and then make sure that the people who are enslaved are not indentured servants will turn it, we'll, we'll make sure that we're only doing slavery. And that actually set the course that actually shaped the country for, for the laws that started to come through started to be passed in order to keep that distinction there. And, and why am I bringing this up? Because once that distinction was made and and then these poor people who were once indentured servants no longer could, could find partnership with other poor people, now enslaved people, they didn't ever really deal with the trauma of their experiences at the hands of people who actually traumatized them, who tortured them. But when they didn't deal with that, they started to then bring those same sort of torture instruments that were in Europe and they started to show up those exact same torture instruments on slave plantations because they didn't deal with their stuff. That's how the stuff comes back, it emerges eventually. and starts to reemerge generation upon generation. And I say this to harken back to Jephthah with this because Jephthah, upon going through the experience of being betrayed by family, and and having the father taken away, he actually then tried to establish something that would ensure that that would never happen again. And and there was something in his approach that apparently God had a very different plan for. Jephthah, you lost your father, and that's where your troubles began. Instead of trying to reestablish yourself as the father and do this for your kids, God said, I'm gonna be your father. Your daughter's not gonna have children. This is the lineage, the end of your lineage, but where does your security need to come from? It comes from me. Where does your encouragement need to come from? It comes from me. And when we start to look at the story of Jephthah and we start to see it maybe from a, from a spiritual perspective, how God may see it. And we wonder, you know, God, you're, you're in the midst of something like this, and, and somehow Jephthah's name is included in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Faith Hall of Fame, in the Faith chapter. What's going on with that? And we start to see, well, God, how are you actually looking at this situation that looks so ambiguous to us and gives us so much problems? But then we start to pan back and see that, wait a minute, let's retell the story a little bit. Jephthah, you were born in Israel, an Israelite at a time when your people were oppressed by their enemies, and yet your brethren rejected you. And we start to make some links. And not only did you go through rejection by your very people, they rejected you and they actually sort of threw these, these darts at you about your parentage, your mother, how she was promiscuous. Is this ring a bell in terms of who else had to deal with something like that? Parentage. Where did you come from? Because your father surely isn't your father who, who you're saying. And when you consider, take another step back. So he had to actually go someplace else. And who was attracted to him? Who became his followers? The people who were outcasts from other places. So he developed this following amongst, pe- amongst people who were outcasts. And then when his brethren came back, they wanted them to come back, but he made this deal with them which says, I'll come back and I'll actually come back and vanquish your enemies, but you have to make me your head. You have to swear allegiance to me. And if we're seeing the links here, we can understand why this is in the scripture. And then the victory then that God grants him over the enemies comes at a tremendous cost which his only child willingly pays. And I hope you're now thinking about the Gospels. I hope we're now making that link. And, and things that Jephthah could not see, but he had to go on faith with because, you know what? The Spirit of the Lord came upon me, and in the midst of this process, I made this vow, and it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't fit any of the plans that I had for my life because my stuff is coming from my pain. God has something else in store, but if I'm faithful to follow through what God is actually doing and how God is directing and leading me, in the last day, trust that God will make it make sense. And we have the, the, the benefit of hindsight being 2020, where we can look back and see how Jephthah's life really sort of mirrors what happens with, with Christ. And how God would put a story like that in scripture for us to chew on, because, of course, at the time, none of that seemed to make sense to Jephthah, to his daughter, but yet they had to go on faith. And therefore, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, he shows up in the faith chapter as one of the heroes of faith. I'll conclude with this, circling back to Colossians 3, 1 through 4. It talks about us having our lives hidden with Christ in God. And we talked a bit about that in God peace speaks to the security in which we're held in God's hand, where nothing can take us out of the hand of God. That's, and, and we're held there so securely that nothing can pluck us out. And in the last day when Christ is revealed and glory is revealed, we'll be revealed with him. So everybody who pays the ultimate price and gives up their life. They're held in God's hands securely. Everybody who suffers in a way that doesn't seem to make sense today, God doesn't miss any of that, and he turns those things into gold nuggets, and he holds that to be revealed on the last day, when Christ is revealed. It will make sense at that time. But we hold on to that by faith, and if we can hold on to that by faith, even if we cannot see it by sight, it makes a difference in terms of how we navigate our everyday. It may still seem mundane, and I pray in some ways that it is mundane for us, meaning that we are following God in such a way that it's just a part of who we are, that it doesn't stand out as unusual. Lord, please get us there. But I think the more difficult piece is the ambiguity of life, the the situations that we have to actually navigate. When we have children who actually make decisions that cost them dearly despite us trying to get them to do otherwise when we have those diagnoses that come and there's no cure for it and we're just suffering with the pain god doesn't miss any of that and the decisions and how we navigate that we have to hold on to god by faith in the midst of that knowing that in god's accounting nothing is ever missed and in the end day we will actually see how valuable those things are because all of those things that we suffer, that we endure, somehow just like Christ's model before us contributes to the ultimate defeat of evil, which will be revealed in that last day. We hold on to those things. And so with that, I think this is a story to consider and then reconsider. I think Jephthah's life is a story to consider, but then reconsider in light of the gospel. And I think it's our lives that as we step back and look at it, we consider, but then ask us to reconsider. If we can pull back the veil, try to see this thing how God is actually seeing it, get a glimpse of it every now and then, what a difference it makes. But we have to hold on to it by faith. With faith, that's how we actually please God. Without it, it's impossible to please God, and God calls us to that. It's not always easy. I wish it were, absolutely wish it were. So with that, you know, as we prepare to you know, go into the week ahead, you know, I just, uh, with, with so much going on in the world, you know, with, with everything that we hear about in Afghanistan and everything that we hear about with a hurricane that's happening, you know, in, in Louisiana, with the things that we hear about because we live in a pandemic context, um, these are the things that we, we truly do navigate. And you know what, sometimes it's not so clear, you know, what, what the right answer is or the best answer in really difficult situations and circumstances but you know we pray that our leaders have good common sense and good instruction that's righteous we pray that we step out in faith in situations that are murky even though that God doesn't reveal things to us so that we see it clearly because that wouldn't be faith that would be sight but God gives us okay but take this step of faith in me and trust that if we're able to do that God's got it God's got it, so that one day, like in Matthew chapter 25, we can actually hear Jesus say to us, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I, need, when I was a stranger, you took me in. And we will be bewildered in terms of when did we see that? When, when did that happen? And he unfolds it and reveals exactly, here's the situation. Here's the situation. You didn't know what was going on, but I was in control in there the entire time. This is some comfort to us in terms of, we are not the ones in control of this thing that God is unfolding. If God can cause rocks to cry out to praise for him, trust us. Even our bad decisions doesn't thwart the plan of God. God can use anything and will use any and everything in order to move his plan forward. But our life is his. So with that let us close out in prayer um and obviously keep keep our family our neighbors our world um in our prayers um as we go into this week um and and our pastor who's a new parent as well and and sonia um, because this is what week two going into and you remember last week when we talked about how great it is when you have a little baby which lasts about a week and then you're really tired, right? And so we want to keep them in prayer as well uh, because they're experiencing some of that everydayness now of what this actually means. So let's look to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for always being faithful and true to your word and to who you are, Lord. Thank you for inviting us into the family of faith, Lord, that you've made a way through Christ. Lord, that you're accomplishing things in this world and in our lives, Lord, that you will bring to pass, Lord. Help us to be faithful to you, Father God, in the process. Lord, as we go into the week, Lord, we pray that even if we cannot see clearly, Lord, that we would still walk by faith. Lord, that even if we don't recognize the significance of each moment, Lord, we still live it by faith. Lord, trusting that it will give you the glory and that you will get the glory in the end. Thank you for our health and strength in being here today, Lord. Bless those who could not join us today, Lord. Keep them, Lord. And as each day passes, Lord, that we have life in us, Lord. Help us to actually live that for you, Lord, because the life that we have is yours. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.